Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here at RTS Washington. I'm joined by my colleagues, Dr. Peter Lee, Dr. Tommy Keene, Dr. Paul Jean, and Dr. Grace Sitanto. And we're now coming into the third in our series on reading guides for biblical books. We started off with the book of Genesis and moved on to Deuteronomy. Now we're going to jump ahead out of the Old Testament into the New Testament books, starting with the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Mark, one of my go-to Gospels because it's a, it's a great illustration of how literature works and how selective history telling works. And, and, and it's, there's a lot to talk about in that, but we're not going to start there because Dr. Grace Sutanto wanted to get this conversation going with a pressing question that all scholars dealing with the gospel of Mark have. And so let me hand it over to you, Dr. Sutanto. Yes, indeed. I think I speak for everyone in this room that we're all wondering about who this person is, this mysterious figure, in Mark 14, 51-52, who is this naked young man running from the scene there? And in case you're wondering, please do take a look at these verses before uh, you listen in on the answer here. But it is a very interesting question. Mark 14, 51-52, Dr. Tommy Keene, I wonder what you think about <laughs> this mysterious figure there. I love I love that we're starting off our New Testament, look at the New Testament with such a uh, an elevated tone from our systematics professor. <laughs> this has significant theological ramifications. Who's the naked guy? Gray, as I think you know, many scholars speculate that this is Mark himself, that this is his kind of cameo appearance, his intrusion into the narrative. Uh, all of the Gospels, interestingly, are uh, anonymous. The authors don't reflect too much on themselves. And the couple of times where we see an author appear they're anonymized. So John, interestingly, anonymizes himself. He's the he's the disciple that Jesus loved, and uh, maybe this is Mark's uh, Mark's moment. And I know the question is a bit tongue in cheek, but it's actually a little bit of an interesting window into Mark and scholarship. You 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 wonder who is this guy? He's uh, this is. Uh, 51, now a certain young man wearing nothing but a linen cloak was following them, and they caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away uh, naked. Um, one of the kind of idiosyncrasies of Mark is that it is, I think it's 97%, you know, somebody does the math, right? 97% of Mark occurs in either Matthew or Luke or both. So there's only 3% of Mark when you're talking about various stories and tales, there's only 3% of Mark that doesn't occur in the other Gospels in some form or fashion. And this is one of those spots. <laughs> of course it's one of those spots because Mark, uh, because Matthew and Luke, you know, take out the little cameo appearance. So part of the logic of why this might be Mark is because it's unique to Mark. And this is Mark's own kind of contribution to the tradition is to to appear then in in the pages and to slide his own uh, you know marker authorial marker into the into the book pun intended <laughs> no <laughs> but but thanks well dr king maybe some of our I'm trying to keep are wondering who who is mark but who is mark who is Mark? Well, a this, serious question now. These are now, serious now we're questions. actually amongst biblical scholars, and 
You know, on the one hand, again, all of the gospel writers, this is true of all of the gospels, that they allied their own names from the narrative. Now, there's some debate about this, but they are, from a literary perspective, technically anonymous. Um, there's a recent article by Simon Gathercole that's really interesting where he kind of pushes back on this idea, and it's worth it's worth looking at. Um, but from a kind of textual perspective, none of the gospel writers, including the two that you might most expect it from, Luke and Matthew, put their names in the narrative. Uh, so that's that's interesting to me. And one of the intents of that seems, in my view, to kind of, you know, we've been in the Deuteronomistic history, right? The Deuter, uh, if we look at the Old Testament historical books, similarly, the authors don't put themselves up front. There's we we believe that it's by Moses. We have good testimony that it's by Moses, but Moses does not wave a flag and say, "I wrote this. Here are my credentials. Here's why I'm writing." He doesn't doesn't do that kind of those typical authorial things that we in the Western tradition expect from our authors. There's no author page. There's no set of um, testimonials from other authors. That that's all that's all missing. And I th look at that and see the gospel writers pl intentionally placing themselves within a tradition. They're not creative geniuses who are who are crafting this literary masterpiece and attaching their name to it, uh, like, like, say, a Josephus might see himself to be doing. Rather, they are heirs of the tradition, delivered and received. As it's been delivered unto us, we pass it on unto you. And part of that literary ethos is they don't put themselves forward as the the genius behind the work kind of idea. Mm -hmm. So I, I I know you're you're asking a legitimate question, who is Mark and what's their background and and how does that tailor our reading? And and we can we can certainly talk about that. But one of the interesting notes here is that these authors don't do that because I, I and I think intentionally to put the tradition forward rather than their own personalities and preferences. So Mark doesn't say much about himself, but he does give a particular theological perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, there's a couple of ways to read the Gospels together, right? One is sort of a historical rendering where Mark, most scholars would say, is the earliest Gospel. Um, and you might correct me if, if I'm wrong there, No, Dr. I Keen. think that's pretty, that, that is one of the established principles of at least contemporary scholarship, most people think Mark is first. That is good to know. And then um, Matthew and Luke are, of course, drawing from Mark. So one way to read the, the three Gospels together, there, or at least the four Gospels, is a, is a historical rendering of the chronological order, Mark first and then the others mm -hmm. later. Mm -hmm. But there, another way to read it really is a canonical shape. Why does Mark come in second? What kind of theological perspective does yeah. Mark contribute? And, and what is he trying to do with this Gospel? I have some speculative thoughts. I don't know if they're worth airing. Those are the best. <laughs> one, um, one possible reason why Mark comes second is a historical question in how the Gospels get bundled, which is, although modern scholars very much are of the opinion that Mark is first and that in some ways both Matthew and Luke draw from Mark, the early church was under the impression that Matthew was first and that mm -hmm. Mark uses Matthew. So the earliest kind of tradition of how the synoptic gospels arise as Matthew being first. Mm. And there are some interesting reasons for that. Um, but I, 
without knowing all of the details about canon formation, I wonder if that motivates mm. some of uh, some of the order there. It is interesting. The you know Mark one does sort of have a Genesis one one mm-hmm. kind of feel. The beginning of the gospel, uh, I think something like that. Um, so it does raise sort of an interesting question. You know, historically it was written first. Why not begin? Perhaps it's more like maybe uh, it's not so much intrinsically about Mark as is more like Matthew that makes it more appropriate. The uh, you know that that genealogy of of Matthew one that kind of divides the genealogy into three large historical groupings, or another way of looking at it is sort of you know that uh, that sort of sixfold division that climaxes to Christ as a Sabbath. Mm-hmm. If there's any truth to that, you do have this sort of interesting, you know, Genesis 1 begins with six that builds to a Sabbath, and then Matthew 1, sort of a sixth thing that develops to a Sabbath and just has that nice literary echo. Maybe that's the reason why, as opposed to Mark. Yeah, the the theology of canonical shape is really interesting, and you find different in the Old and New Testament, you find different reasons why books are ordered in the way that they are. Sometimes it's just length, you know longest to shortest as by the way the pauline epistles are you know keeping the cities grouped together and then separating out the pastorals you know it's Mm -hmm. longest to shortest i think what we we get one guide with the with the gospels in that the gospels are kept together for genre so that luke acts is is divided up by john and it seems that luke as a gospel is kept with the gospels and particularly with the synoptic gospels. I wonder with Matthew, if you could even say more than that, that Matthew is clearly the segue gospel with the old Testament. Yeah. It's so full of old Testament references, including the genealogy. Right. And then if this is now, you know, I remember one time having a conversation about this with uh, miles van Pelt, who's got quite a lot of views in terms of like macro canonical structure. And we were talking about this and reflecting on the fact this was years ago. And actually when we were putting together that biblical theological intro that if the commonly received now this is this is a very speculative argument but if the commonly received canon of the hebrew bible was you know ended with chronicles as the current jewish canon tanakh does then it's interesting chronicles begins as matthew begins with a um with a long far-reaching genealogy and then they also have all the same themes of what the restoration Israel should look like. All of Israel will be a part of it, including the Northern Kingdom, which would have been radical. You know, so all of a sudden you have Matthew being almost like part two of Chronicles. Right. There's almost a portion, I think, of uh, Matthew's genealogy that actually might be just a cut and paste from the big yeah. nine chapter, or a portion of that opening nine chapters in Chronicles as well. So that might be it more. It's not, the problem is not Mark. It, it's just Matthew just fits better to start a New Testament canon. Which means that at least the, the early church and the canonical order has interests that is more than the historical, has interests about the whole canonical shape, the whole story yeah. of scripture. It sees itself in continuity Anthematic, with the Old Testament. Interested in themes. Yeah. yeah. But that's all, important. I think, you know, when we talk about history, I think our modern concepts of historical writing is so fixated on chronology. Right. And and that's the reason why people have issues with uh, some Old Testament chronology, which is intentionally dischronologized mm-hmm. for theological uh, purposes. Here's an example of that at a macro level in terms of the canon. That it's cl- clearly, uh, at least as historical writing as the written text goes, the dating of these texts, uh, it is you know out of order in terms of dating to create a 
theological message. Yeah, and and on that note, Matthew is a good segue. I like that way of putting it. From a, even from a from a theological point of view, but also from a narrative point of view, you get that is it Matthew most clearly brings Israel's story into the focal point. Um, in fact, if you you look at the first three chapters of Matthew, it seems intentionally crafted to project Israel's story onto Jesus. Maybe most famously, out of Egypt I called my son, picking up the Exodus through the minor prophets and into uh, Christ as the fulfillment or the the telos of Israel's existence. So it is a nice segue. Mark isn't not doing that. He certainly has a an interest in telling uh, the the Israel shape of Christ's redemption, and you get that Old Testament narrative that old those Old Testament references all throughout. You get it in, uh, quite obviously in in verses two through three, but Mark is more subtle about it. It's more elusive, uh, 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 illusion-based than as Matthew is wont to do, to to draw those connections very deliberately. This is to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. You know, Matthew will tell us that over and over and over again. Mark kind of alludes and memes it out in in more subtle ways than, than the other gospel writers do. So what would be the main theological contribution of the Gospel of Mark among the Gospels? Well, I, I mean, it's not just a theological contribution. If we, if we think about the the relationship between Mark, Matthew, and Luke, I'm trying to answer every, your question, but I'm also shifting. I'm also changing your question so it matches what I want to say. Go uh, for it. This is Washington, D.C. That's a powerful skill here. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Um, the question you should be asking is um, theological, literary, historical, like it shapes all it shapes the way the gospel story is told. Uh, there's a reason why the synoptics all look very similar, and it's because Mark becomes this common third, you know, the the the, the middle ground. It, it is it it provides the structure, the shape, the kind of content that's going to be addressed by Matthew and Luke. So it it sets the tradition in motion of how the gospel, how, how a gospel is to be to be written um, and to be addressed and to be the story of the gospel to be told. At the center of that, for Mark, and to get to your, to now actually answer your question, at the center of the theological trajectory of Mark is this claim that Jesus is the Messiah, Israel's king and the savior of the world and the true son of God who will sit on Adam's you know, on the seat promised to an Adamic king, like that that messianic claim that in the Christian tradition hinges not only on Jesus's humanity and in, in the in the born of the seed of David, and in that sense Messiah, but also his de- deity that he is the true divine Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. That we see at the heart of Mark, the kind of turning point of Mark is Peter's confession that you are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. You are the, you are the one that we hope for. Um, in Mark, those claims are subtle, and and even at the end of Mark, you see Mark kind of like lean, leaving that question hanging in some ways, and yet that is the central question. And his central thesis is that Jesus, in his word and deed, establishes himself as the heir to Israel, the messianic king, the true son, raised son of God. 
um, and then Luke and Matthew will present that same theme through different through different angles. Obviously, John also through a different angle, but that then is at the kind of the heart the heart of Mark's theology, the identity of Christ. Tommy, how would you help? Um, You're a New Testament scholar. Too. I agree, Paul. You, <laughs> you can't to, ask you questions. You have to claim. answer questions. I, I'll make a claim after this. Okay. <laughs> so, I have a question if you... It, oh, I'm sorry. I don't want to be rude and interrupt, but go uh, ahead. Well, how would you help readers reconcile what seems to be the messianic secret and yeah. Mark with Jesus's open claims in John's gospel. Perhaps so. uh, to just quick maybe define the, the issue of the Messianic secret before, because it is a re mm -hmm. relevant question. Yeah, it's it's a huge question both, and something that the church has always kind of struggled with at one level or another, that Jesus, like Gandalf, does not come out and say it. Like he, he's not, uh, there's a spot where, uh, actually it's right after the confession, uh, it's right after Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, where Jesus, uh, Mark says, begins to speak plainly to the disciples to tell them that he must suffer and die before he is raised. And that little that little word plainly is kind of this huge word, not only for Mark, but for the synoptic tradition. It's most clear in Mark, but in all of the synoptic tradition, Jesus veils his messianic identity. He doesn't come out and just say, I am the second person of the Trinity. Here's Trinitarian theology and what that means. And then I am the promised Messiah. He, he leaves, he speaks in riddles. He speaks in parables. He speaks in stories. He, he, he claims it, but he claims it in a almost secondary way, especially in Mark. Um, the people pick this up but they don't quite know what to do with it. They don't know where to go with that conclusion. And so this has become known, especially through Vreda and the other, and through the you know, academic tradition as the messianic secret. Why does Jesus hide in some respects, or I, I prefer the word veil, his messianic identity? I mean, on the one hand, you can't say that he veils it because he doesn't say outright in propositional claims who he is. But Mark chapter 2, you have him actually claiming to forgive somebody's sins and right. ultimately saying that that's actually more difficult than raising him up, right? Right. Uh, the, um, the paralyzed man there. So he, he communicates in his actions who he is, yeah. even though he doesn't say it. So what? why is he doing that? Why is he right. focusing more on his actions than his words? Right. So, so one problem with the the language of the messianic secret is it can overstate the claim and you see this in the academic tradition jesus does never claims to be messiah never claims to be equal with the father well that's been roundly criticized by by academics especially in the modern period both in the evangelical tradition and in the non and, and, a, and in a more critical mindset no he does the Mark chapter two is a direct claim. I have the authority, so that you might know that I have the authority to forgive sins. Mm -hmm. Now he does, he does, there are, you know, from a purely logical point of view, he's hiding some of the propositions and the conclusions or the, uh, the premises and some of those conclusions. They are to draw the implication from this, that he has mm -hmm. the authority to forgive sins, that he is therefore one with the father. Mm -hmm. And he, and he doesn't do that. He does, but he leaves it for them to work that out. Um, and as a result, 
what what I think's going on there is he is building a case and he is doing so over the course of the long course of his ministry building a case he he doesn't just state it he builds the case from uh, on on old testament grounds and on the basis of his word and deed that he is the promised messiah and that the promised messiah has to be the true divine son of god Mm -hmm. but it is a it is a case that is built up from word and deed from his work and who he is not by fiat and Mm -hmm. so it it forces you as the reader and as you know the observer at the time to wrestle with who Jesus is and you are in Peter's shoes now who is who who do you say the son of man is is he the son of god and what are you going to do about it yeah jesus it's interesting it makes this interesting distinction too between discourse and event right because we have jesus saying don't tell people about me and that's that's the story of jesus right and that's a part of those are the events that took place. It's one thing to ask, why does Jesus say these things? Did he say these things? And why does he say those things? But then interestingly, you know, kind of going back to your earlier point that Mark is so actively using illusion that he kind of follows that model in the way that he presents the gospel himself. Like you said, he doesn't come out and say in those first eight chapters that Jesus is Messiah, but he has people asking these questions right throughout, like after Jesus heals the, uh, he heals the, the paralytic. paralytic in Mark 2. It says that the leadership who's there says in their hearts, who who can forgive sins but God alone, right? And Mark's yeah. saying, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and then when he, and when he calms the wind and the waves in Mark 4, the disciples say, who is this, that even the winds and the waves obey him? And Mark says, right? You know, and he's also just told that wind in the wave story uniquely, actually, interestingly, uh, the way Mark tells the story is much closer to the Septuagint language and structure of the story that we find for Jonah than even Matthew is. And Matthew's usually the real Old Testament guy. Right. But in this case, actually, Mark's very Old Testamenty, And he tells the story of the wind and the waves like he's retelling mm-hmm. the Jonah story and who calms the winds and the waves in the Jonah story. The creator God. Yeah. Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him, right? And suddenly it sheds all this light on that passage. But Mark doesn't come out and say it, but he has other people ask questions of which the only answer is, oh, he's he's creator God. Yeah, and and the beauty of, again, especially in Mark, the beauty of leaving that said but unsaid creates a drama that is reflective of the whole narrative of the gospel. The drama of the gospel is that the crucified one, the one who was defeated, the one who is portrayed as slain, uh, the one who looks like he is of all men, especially cursed. He is the risen one. He is the Lord. He is the one who is, who has victory over death and victory over the grave and reigns at the right hand of the father. That that's kind of the, the dramatic mystery of Mark is, that the king would be would be slain and would suffer and then by stating but not stating that directly what mark does is create that drama in your personal narrative with jesus will i receive the one who is slain will i do i affirm that he is the risen one and famously mark ends you you'll if you if you turn to the kind of ending of mark you'll see in your even in your english bibles that there's actually debate about how it ends and i'm of the opinion that it ends with mark uh, 15 8 that ends kind of on this fade to black Um, mary 
sees Jesus uh, uh, or sees the angel risen and is told, go and proclaim Jesus. But uh, there's this, she runs, there's this fear that takes over and it just sort of ends. And it leaves you then with this lingering question, who is this man, Jesus? Is he the true son of God? And then as as you said, Scott, the only conclusion is that the because he is risen, he must be who he said he was. That, no, that's why I had asked the question, because I think that the best way to ask about the messianic secret is if you try to answer that in isolation, just like what's you know, what's that about? It's not helpful. But when you answer it the way you did, it tells us how to read Mark mm-hmm. intentionally, mm-hmm. that it's not just uh, relaying facts, but there's a rhetorical purpose mm-hmm. uh, that Mark is accomplishing. And that's why uh, the story is told the way it is. But I think what's also really important, as you guys are pointing that out, is that the 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 self-consciousness of Jesus is his own embracing of his own um, uh, identity as uh just not just Messiah, but God incarnate Messiah. Uh, so the whole Rita uh, theory of the you know the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith yeah. doesn't hold water because the text itself sort of shows that Jesus is not denying by staying silent. Um, he is still embracing it, but for different reasons. He's asking this not to be proclaimed yet uh, for various different reasons. You know, maybe it has something to do with false understandings of. Messiah, you know, you think you Messiah, you think victory, you think, you know, the glory days of David returned again, and that's not what's going to happen here. You know, he's actually going to suffer and die. Uh, you know, the the concept of what uh, Messiah, as it was understood by the Jews of his day, was was very different than the actual Messiah and the kingdom that Jesus was going to bring, um, and that needed to be understood. So before you start, you know. Uh, embracing a false view of kingdom, a false view of Messiah, first understand yeah. exactly who I am as Messiah. I'm yeah. not what you might think. So let's get that straight before we actually move forward. Yeah. yeah, and I think you see that clearly when Peter, for example, rebukes Jesus when Jesus tells him that he's going to suffer and die. And this is right in the middle of the book of Mark. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, right, to Peter, which means that Jesus was very concerned that his notion of Messiahship was properly understood to be a missional driven, a missional identity driven by his desire to ransom yeah. himself for many. So Mark ten forty five coming after the rebuke of Peter becomes a very pivotal claim, I think, for him. I, I kind of wonder, uh, you guys, uh, you know, in, in relation to some of this real strong Peter language uh, uh, that we read here, or that we're kind of alluding to, the centerpiece of of Mark being the confession of Peter, uh, like you suggested, is is it still? Uh, accepted the old view well well, at least for me what was uh accepted in terms of uh, yes this was mark who wrote it but was mark kind of discipled by peter and Rome? Mm -hmm. that that type of idea Mm -hmm. is that still kind of the view that's out there so in one sense reading mark is reading mark but it's really the kind of the thoughts of peter that you're seeing here yeah that's a long-standing tradition in the in the church to see it as associated with with peter Mark being a companion of Peter, um, as, as well as Paul from time to time, inter- intersecting with the life of Paul. Uh, so that's very much still in the in the air. Um, Balcom's book on Jesus and the eyewitnesses does a great deal on that. Um, if you're looking for kind of a historical and literary proof, or at least suggestive proof of that thesis, Balcom's the 
the guy to go to. And I find it very persuasive. It's hard. To, it's a hard thing to prove because we don't know the manuscript tradition and we don't have all of the details. Uh, but nevertheless, the, the centrality of Peter and Peter bookends the gospel as well. So there's some good indications that Peter is at the heart of Mark's tradition, at least. You talk about Mark's tradition. What do you mean by that? I didn't mean anything by <laughs> Mark, Mark's telling of the tradition. Mark's telling the tradition. Yeah. So not like there was a tradition that Mark was following. Well, I mean, there is. It's it, it would be in the back of Mark would be Peter, right? That that you end a series and, and a, the way that the story is told. So I, I don't, there's obviously there's different views on this. But it, it doesn't seem to me as we look at the Gospels, if you look at Luke, None of the other gospel writers kind of give us a an intro. Here's here's what I did. Here's how I did it. Here's my research method. But Luke does. And what he does is say, I followed all things from the beginning. I I read, I looked it up, I researched, I was a documentary reporter, and he puts it together uh, from 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 that material. So I, Mark wasn't an eyewitness for the full breadth of his gospel. So he is getting this material from the tradition. He is an heir to, at the very least, Peter's reflection. And we can assume from that that it may might not just be Peter, but that he he this has been delivered unto him. And so some of the shape and flair and theology isn't necessarily Mark's. It's Mark sitting at the feet of a tradition. Now, how that looks, we can only we can only speculate. And so I think we have to be very careful about that. But I would resist the urge to see Mark as kind of coming up with this in the in in the upper room kind of in isolation from the community of faith that mm-hmm. that contributes to the shape of the narrative. Now, having said that, clearly Mark's imprint is on here as we look at Luke, as we look at Matthew. Um Mark some have described Mark as a the, the the book of Mark as the work of a brutish genius, and you you see that you see his personality. It's very abrupt. You pop from one story to the next immediately, immediately, immediately seems to be Mark's favorite word, and so you, there there is kind of this. I've I've grown to really love reading Mark, even though it was kind of my least favorite gospel at the beginning of my career. I've loved reading it because you are immersed. You are overwhelmed with the with this mysterious, veiled, but uh, inescapable claim that Jesus is the one true God, that Jesus is the Messiah, uh, the promised one, and it's just it's almost it's it's almost inescapable in the way it's told. You're given you're not given time to take a breath in Mark in the way that you are in Luke and Matthew. You mentioned before that you choose the shorter ending, right? 16 Yeah, yeah. Um, I've thought through whether Mark reads differently mm-hmm. if you take the longer ending. And so I'm also of the view that the shorter ending makes sense because it ends basically on this note. Let me read this again. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Yeah. So some scholars have posited that 
mark as a challenge almost to its audience. Like, will you respond with fear or will you go and share mm-hmm. about Jesus' resurrection? Whereas when you compare it w- with the longer ending, it ends, some would say, on a positive note. Uh, verse 19, so then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So do you think the gospel reads very differently or not really? Or at least its purpose is different. Yeah, I think the ending would change its tone. Yeah, like tone, the, right? The, yeah. yeah. Um, you're, you're making the same conclusion conclusions but mm-hmm. one of the th- things i like about the shorter ending is it just fits mm-hmm. the style of yeah, mark mark does yeah. not connect the dots for you you yeah, have that's to how do that. i always felt like the longer ending was almost too clean yeah doesn't the longer ending also kind of read like a pastiche of other gospel accounts mm-hmm. now of course that begs the question maybe they got it all from this but yeah it's harder to read it that way than it is to read this as kind of an abbreviation of kind of maybe somebody who wasn't happy with that, with that uh, dot, dot, dot ending right. that, that maybe originally came with the passage. And so they said, well, we know these other things also happened. And so it kind of fills it out. Of course, that's speculative. Um, but this, I, I want to just wrap around because this is an interesting question. What, what are we doing here? We're talking about things that aren't explicitly stated in the scripture, but are implicit and, the more we read scripture, I think the more we realize so much of our teaching is things that are implicit. It doesn't mean that they're not provable or we can't be certain of them, but they're, they are implicit because this is how people talk, right? And even as you're talking about a Markan tradition, Tommy, you know, this idea, which is often kind of news to a lot of Christians, but that uh, inspiration of scripture comes to us in a very organic and normal way. And, Praise God that he gives us books in the New Testament like Luke, where Luke, he shows you the sausage being made, right? He tells you how he did it, right? I interviewed people. I looked at other manuscripts. You know, his eyes didn't roll back in his head and he didn't go into a trance and spout out these these stories. These are very organically developed. In the Old Testament, we have Jeremiah, Jeremiah and Baruch. I love the fact that they like to talk about what they're doing. They say, well, Jeremiah would preach during the day. We'd all get together later that night and talk about it. And then Baruch would write it down under the supervision of Jeremiah. You know, it's like, it's very normal and organic. And so while Luke tells us what he's doing, we shouldn't think, well, that's only true of Luke, right? It's Luke explicitly telling us what we can expect uh, in the other scripture, you know, the, the the other gospel writers as well. And so it should be surprising that maybe Mark comes out of Rome and maybe it's, uh, maybe he's drawing off of Peter and other witnesses. Those are the kinds of things I think the text invites us to ponder. Mm-hmm. It also, it humanizes the text, but it's also a good indicator of its divine, it, because it's natural and it arises in the natural way, um, even as it's inspired, we can appreciate that God is respecting the ordinary ways things happen. Mm. And you know, instead of the eyes rolling back into the head, although that is, you know, the vision is a way in which God communicates to his people, but that doesn't appear to be what the gospels are doing. Uh, that's what Revelation is doing, but here we have a different genre and we have a form appropriate to that genre and it arises in the natural way we would expect. That's good evidence of its historicity and its authenticity. But, but even there, even with the vision, it's not as if John himself is not reporting on the right. vision, 
right? He's got to write down other voice Mm -hmm. as other religious traditions hold that it's the, it's the voice of God now speaking and the personality of the author has disappeared. It's still an organic reflection on a vision. Yeah. He, he write, he has to write what he saw Yep. and what does he, what language, what background, what cultural phenomena does he use to write it down? He uses his own, his own personality. I have a question for for our New Testament brethren. Uh, you know, I have a thought on this, but uh, I'm I am intrigued to know what what you think, Paul. Uh, you know, one thing that has been uh, observed about Mark that is unique uh, from the other Gospels is how very little didactic teaching you have in Mark. So, not a lot of parables, not a lot of sermons from Jesus. I mean, now, granted, I don't think he, I don't know how much he actually preached, but. You don't you have very little of that as opposed to, you know, Matthew and and Luke and John. It's more like a, you know, a lot of action. It's a, it's a lot of Jesus doing stuff, uh, uh, casting out demons, healing. It's sort of a Michael Bay movie as opposed to a um, um, Council of Elrond, you know, where they're just sort of dialoguing yeah. back and forth, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Unpack unpack that a little bit. <laughs> Well, you know, there's you know Michael Bay movie. They're not talking. There's no dialogue. It's just okay. sort of one explosion after Straight another. Is what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of what Tom you mentioned earlier. You, yeah, <laughs> see, Doctor, you just need to watch more air, movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a Marvel movie. How's that? Yeah. You know, there's no dialogue. They're not interested in story development. It's they just, not like a Netflix miniseries where you've got five minutes of the guy just walking across a field. Yeah, no, they, they, you know, you know, you know, I'm, I look, I'm not trying to say Mark is shallow or anything like that. My point simply is that there's lots of action that yeah. you have Jesus who's doing stuff. It's breathless. You are moving quite quickly through the book. Yeah. So any thoughts on, you know, the, the impact that makes on the message and, and why perhaps, why, why is Mark less interested in the uh, teachings of Christ as opposed to the, um, action-packed Jesus. I'd love to hear your thought on it, Peter. But I, I think the idea of this this developing a picture of who Messiah is seems to be a part of the rhetorical effect of the gospel. It's developing who Messiah is by how he acts and things yeah. he says, but not his long discourses. Like, uh, uh, you know, there's no sermon on the plain or sermon on the mount here. Um, so it's it's more through his activity and what he says in short, like to show you that I have the authority to forgive sins. Yeah. He, he says things like that. What is it doing? It's 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 as, as Tommy pointed out. It's kind of painting a collage of who Messiah is, or who Messiah ought to be, so that when we meet Jesus and we see who he is, and we see the the we see the proclamation about him in, in Mark eight. We realize, oh, this is who Messiah ought to be, not who we thought he was. I think of it. Yeah. You know, I one time had to preach on this, and I was one of the analogies I used was how in Chronicles of Narnia they keep hearing reports about Aslan, the children do before they meet him. They hear reports, and then they start to see the snow melting, mm-hmm. and they start to see flowers budding, and people having feasts, and Father Christmas shows up, and all that. And then by the time they meet Aslan. Now they understand who Aslan is, as opposed to just hearing Aslan talk about himself or something like that. So it kind of develops a collage. By the time they meet him, they already love him, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that's that to me that's kind of how Mark works. It's developing this collage that 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 develops into eight, where then somebody finally just says it: "You're Christ." I think that's a good mm-hmm. kind of s- summation and a a good, especially as we kind of think about 
the the purpose of these epi- podcast episodes as reading guides. I think that that'd be a good thing to leave people with that em- embrace that aspect of Mark. It especially for modern readers, the abruptness of Mark and the the dark ending and the moving from image to image and from moment to moment, the swiftness of it all, the it, and the the picture that you get of Jesus of uh, that is that is at times disconcerting. Embrace that as you read Mark because it's it's Mark challenging your picture of Jesus, your expectations of Jesus, and showing you something bigger, better, more beautiful, showing you Christ who dies who the the Messiah who is King, dying for his people, suffering on the cross embracing the and doing that for the joy set before him so that that darkness that tension that you get especially in mark some of those some of those sharp edges that are going to be smoothed over by matthew and luke embrace that in this book because it it challenges you to remember who your savior actually is rather than who you think he is i wonder you know uh maybe it maybe it's just my inf- not being too familiar or i need to be more familiar with the gospels as a whole that uh mark really um alludes either generally uh or um or or at times specifically alludes to isaiah mm-hmm. quite a lot you know re- in fact right in the opening he even right. re- references isaiah and um Particularly, second Isaiah, uh, or you know, Isaiah forty to sixty-six, the whole, you know, uh, promise of restoration, presuming exile, that type of a theme, and and thus the the messianic identity of Jesus is is uh, you know, I mean, at some point we probably should define what we mean by Messiah because that you know is sort of vague at times and it has to be a little bit more specified. But you know, the messianic identity of Christ. Uh, is not just a uh, son of David um, in the most superlative sense, but son of David who is now restoring um, kingdom out of exile. And, and, and the Isaiah references there perhaps has something to do specifically with the fact that exile is now over. I'm, I'm always kind of reminded by uh, Voss, I think, in his... Um, I think it's in his self-disclosure of Jesus, which actually is not is very relevant to the messianic secret that we were discussing earlier, because that sort of of is sort of response to Rada and the, you know, the Jesus of history, Christ of faith type type of idea, and 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 his strong defense for the self-conscious understanding uh, of Jesus's uh, self-awareness of his messianic identity and, and mission, where he talks about. Um, the language that Jesus talks about when he talks about the coming of the kingdom that he establishes is that the kingdom is now here, which is kind of weird if you think about it because the restoration of the kingdom was sort of restored already. So why is it now come as if it never came back before? And uh, Voss's argument is that the kingdom really was never really restored after exile. The the restoration, the Ezra-Nehemiah post-exilic restoration was not really restoration. It was still exile. <laughs> You know, they never, and you know, the condition of the temple, the second temple being built was never really, you know, that glamorous. The, um, this may explain part of the reason why there's such a strong Deuteronomic theme in Ezra and Nehemiah that's often underappreciated. You know, the, 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 the priests are, 
are rebuked because they are intermarrying now with Canaanite, well, you know, uh, non-covenantal people. That's Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, as if Deuteronomic law, Mosaic orthodoxy is sort of restored. You're still in Moses' time. You're still in exile, pre-kingdom, pre-David, mm-hmm. and that the kingdom does not really come until the definitive uber-Messiah comes. And Mark's uh, citing of Isaiah is to say the Messiah has come, thus exile is now over, kingdom is now here, the one that we've been expecting in all of its grandeur and full Mm. glory. And thus, you know, if you have a action-packed Jesus, so to speak, it really emphasizes the fact that this exile is over, kingdom is now here, you know, the authority of the kingdom is here, I'm casting out demons, I'm performing miracles, I'm, uh, you know, I'm healing uh, uh, the sick, I'm raising the dead, uh, you know, um, you, you, it's it's as if, and then you have that sort of realized, um, inaugurated eschatology. It's here, but it's not here, but it's here. It's, you know, it's as if it's here, as if there's nothing more, while at the same time, there's so much more to come as if it has never come. You know, it's that duality that Mark really seems to bring out, it seems, by really emphasizing this, um, I'm afraid to say it this way, but I hope it comes across this sort of Michael Bay type Jesus, you know, who's causing all of the stir up and and very little dialogue because you don't want you don't you don't need a Jesus that's going to give a lot of sermons and parables. You need a Jesus that is establishing the kingdom now, and mm. and and that's what he does. And, mm. Wow, that's great, Peter. And that, I think that's absolutely true. I think even in the Old Testament, if you look at the end of the Ezra Nehemiah account, it does not end like the restoration has come. You know, there's not streams flowing in the desert. Whatever the prophets were talking about, about restoration hadn't happened in Nehemiah's day. And so he ends with, Lord, don't forget about us. I think you're absolutely right. It, it shows that when the New Testament authors come on scene and say, now restoration has come, they're not stating something that's strictly a Christian idea, that 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 it hadn't come yet, but rather they're saying Jesus is the one who brings it. Right, and even you see that tension you've already in the prophets. Isaiah is thinking new heavens, new earth at a much more cosmic level. Yeah, you know uh, the post-restoration, post-exil. That's clearly not even close to that yeah. uh, picture there. And so, yeah, that's beautiful. Well, friends, this has been a great conversation, uh, and I'm really enjoying this project of walking through these biblical books and hearing y'all's insights on them. And it's also giving a basic overview. When we come back and talk about gospels next, uh, well, we will need to dig more into the idea of the genre of the gospel. What is a euangelion after all? It's, it's clearly not just straight up history writing. So what is it? And so we'll have to discuss that next time we talk about a gospel down the road. Uh, but that'll be a teaser until then. Um, If you're interested in having conversations like this more regularly be a part of your life, we'd encourage you to think about RTS Washington. You can find out more about us at rts.edu forward slash Washington. We'd also love to welcome you to uh, post a question or any comments about the podcast that we could address in a future episode. You can do that by going to the show notes of this podcast and you'll see a link there to a form that you can fill out. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks to those of you who have already reached out to us. That's been, uh, it's been great to hear your reflections and questions. So friends, it's been great to have this conversation. Look forward to it next time. Until then, take care. 
installment. We started with Genesis and then did Deuteronomy, and now we're going to hop ahead, not just out of the books of Moses, not just out of the Old Testament. That's stupid, because we are going out of the Old Testament. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. No. Segways. My favorite part. Segways. 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 It's all good. 